You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you see? What you doing to me When you don't believe a word I say Hello and welcome to episode 56 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I am your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm beginning a three-part story arc, and the last story arc written by Doug Murray with issue number 49 of the series. And we'll also look at the second Savage Tales story, which was published in Savage Tales number 4. Like last episode, there's no date indicated as to our main story setting, so I went with Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley, which was number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100 in late 1969, and was not only the King's 17th number 1, but his final number one song, a song that was widely regarded as one of his best and notably capped a comeback that began with his 1968 television special. Our story, which is called What They're Fighting For, came out on August 28, 1990 and was cover dated October 1990, although the indicia on page one has a misprint of November 1990. Our creative team is Doug Murray, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. We open on what should have been an easy patrol along the Cambodian border that has gone wrong. Desperately, terribly wrong. Martini kneels by a fallen soldier wondering where the choppers are. We cut to the skies where a pilot codenamed Dove sees the smoke from Martini's battle and flies in, firing at the enemy so that he can help the guys on the ground. Daniels and Martini spot the choppers and soon they land and are loaded up. Dove gives the word to take off and as he is flying back notices that the oil pressure is getting low, probably because they're carrying so much weight. He tells his co-pilot Phil that he wants everyone off quick so he can take off and get the six or seven they left behind. They get the guys off the chopper and Dove is about to take off when he receives word from the tower that he needs to forget about those guys and pick up a couple of donut dollies at the forward artillery base. As Dove flies to the base, the rest of the guys in the crew clean up the back of the chopper because they want to make a good impression. Ten minutes later, they land and our donut dollies, Marilyn and Gail, get on board. Marilyn, who is blonde, flirts with Phil and while they fly away, Gail strikes up a conversation with Dove. They drop the ladies off and Phil is having a hard time not panting at the two women as they walk away. Dove tells him to knock it off and lets Phil know how he heard the rest of the guys from the fight at the beginning of the issue were picked up with no problem, so they can head home. Several days later, Dove is flying another group out while Phil regales him with stories about how hot Marilyn and Gail was, even pointing out that one of them put the moves on Dove. One of the guys responds that only thing Dove cares about is flying his Huey. The chopper lands and Martini leads his men out. Dove order, gets orders to fly to another location and heads out, picking up some wounded from a nearby artillery base along with Marilyn and Gale, who help with the wounded. When they land at Tainin, Marilyn and Phil arrange for a date, but as long as Dove will come along to be Gale's date. Phil says it's guaranteed, and the next night the foursome go to a restaurant in Tainin named the Frenchman's. 
Phil and Dove, whose first name is Eli, are well known at the place, and while Phil's the life of the party, Dove's a little more reserved. Even if Gail is definitely interested. Hours later, Phil tries to make a move on Marilyn to hopefully get her into bed, and she stops him right there, letting him know that she's not that kind of girl. Gail gives Dove a peck on the cheek and the girl's head off. Phil congratulates Dove on getting a girl to like him, and Dove says he's always been shy and thinks for a brief moment that maybe the right girl has just come along, but then he stores that thought. Several days later, at a forward fire base on the Cambodian border, the helicopter eat crew eats sea rations, and Phil pours way too much hot sauce on one of the other guy's sea rations. He's going to throw them out when Phil says he'll eat them, and the guy says, 50 bucks you can't. As Phil is downing his chow, there's gunfire, and they investigate to see a chopper coming in low and catching a lot of fire. They can't hear anything on the radio and then watch as the chopper goes down not too far away from them. The guys rush to the chopper and see Marilyn climbing out of the wreckage. Dove says, oh my god, Gail, and jumps into the chopper to get her out. She's unconscious and bleeding badly. Seconds later, as the chopper clears the fire zone, Dove screams that he needs a helipad to land and a triage team. Gail has lost a lot of blood, and as they fly, Dove thinks, I should have known all my life I've waited for one person, and now that I've found her, I'm going to lose her. To be continued. This is the first multi-issue story arc that Doug Murray wrote for the series, and by that I mean it's the first time when one issue led directly into another issue as opposed to what we've been seeing from the beginning, which was going forward in real time from month to month. Yes, there were things that carried over from month to month back when Doug was doing real-time storytelling, but here it's a lot more compressed and direct. We've got a chopper pilot and the girl he falls for, and this is going to be the swan song for our series creator. It's a pretty good one, too, to be honest. The cover, which I think I forgot to mention in my synopsis, is once again done by Andy Kubert, and it shows a missile headed for a helicopter with the caption, Of Love and Missiles. It's alright. This is a couple of years before Kubert takes over for Jim Lee on the X-Men, and his art is in a stage where it's really scratchy, for the most part. And the artwork in this entire issue is a bit off. I mean, Herb Trimpey is someone I was very familiar with going into this because of his work on the G.I. Joe comics back in the early 1980s. And the pencils were pretty solid. He doesn't seem to ink himself very heavily, so I can't exactly put all the blame on him there. Actually, it's the colors that seem to be doing this issue injustice. I really haven't had many negative things to say about Phil Felix's coloring the entire time I've been doing this podcast. But with this issue, it's wonky in a number of places. I don't know if it was the printing process or what, but there are points where the colors seem to overwhelm Trimpey's inks, and there are places where it seems like stuff just doesn't particularly lined up. And then there are pages where the guy's skin is like a bright pink as opposed to peach on other pages. It's enough for you to notice and almost takes you out of the story. As for the story... This is the solid first act of a three-parter. Dove, who has the great soldier's mustache, by the way, is a reserved guy who meets a nice girl and he starts to like her, and by the end of the issue he realizes that he cared a lot about her, a lot more than he originally let on, especially after he sees that her life is in danger. I think having a friend in Phil, who's more of a goofy, outgoing type, helps, because I honestly found myself rolling my eyes at Phil in the same ways that Dove did. Gail and Marilyn aren't very well-rounded characters, but at this point, they probably don't need to be. They're at the beginning of the story, 
they're a little flirty, and I can imagine that this was very typical for the time. Plus, this flirting and Phil's being a total horn dog seems it's pretty typical for the situation they're in. I can't imagine that these guys are hanging out with women on a regular basis, and at the beginning, Dove does express frustration that he has to pick up two women who were in a combat zone, which was pretty rare during that time. So when they seem to like them, it makes sense that Phil and Dove would take that seriously. Then, we have the cliffhanger, and that's Marilyn and Gail being in that helicopter, which is... Well, it's predictable on some level, but it makes for a solid ending to a story that is going to be continued in the next issue and a way for us as the audience to see what Dove really thinks and really feels for about this woman. He really cares. He's visibly upset when he realizes that she's in the helicopter and is shouting over the radio to get some sort of medical attention once they get on the ground so that she doesn't die. As for letters and ads this issue, incoming this month, we have Brian Pfeiffer writing in. He's been collecting since issue 24. He asks all the back issues. He says, after reading the incoming section issue 44, I have to agree with Mark. Issue 40 and 41 were a bit corny. Stick with reality. I, too, think an issue in Special Forces would be a great idea. I love the LLR, LRRP issue in 27. and issue 24, the VC attacking the building were wearing red armbands. Why? Doug says, okay, no more issues like 40 and 41. As for special forces, there'll be more ahead, more along with some Marine LRRPs by Chuck Dixon. And the red armbands were to help identify various VC outfits or guerrillas working with them in the chaos of the city. Thanks for the interest. Neil O'Connor from WN Enterprises in New Monmouth, New Jersey writes... This is to endorse the idea suggested by reader Brian Bedwell that you do a comic on the German armed forces on the Eastern Front in World War II. Survival Art Press has already started a series, the Waffen SS, that captures a lot of the gritty realism of that meat grinder, a sort of frozen version of the Nam. Here, too, they fight a hopeless battle between two ruthless ideologies, and a battle that was to the death, complete with atrocities and far-reaching consequences which are still being resolved. With German reunification on the horizon, wow, that's that you could tell that that dates this comic, <laughs> German reunification, and European unit reunification to come in 1992. Wow, I mean, Europe is still Europe. There's Maastricht and there's the Euro, but again, you could. It is just just to break from this letter. It is amazing. This is why I love these letters. It is amazing to see how much of their time this was, and the this is nineteen ninety. The the optimism of the late eighties and early nineties when it did seem that Europe was on the verge of something. I mean, eighty nine was huge, and to see this optimism carried over into ninety that like Europe would be unified and everything was just like this this precipice of peace. It was this is really just cool on some level. All right, back into the story here. Um, Unification, 1992. It's essential that we understand what happened from 1941 to 1945 in the East, where the Second World War was decided. An honest presentation, Alva Vietnam could make this good, could do much good in this direction. Think about it. Doug writes, We got a similar letter from Ferdinand R. Quinones, one that had also some fine suggestions for Nam stories. Stay with us, Ferdinand. We'll get to them. I think an Eastern Front book might be interesting, but frankly, the powers that be in comics feel that war books are not successful. I'll leave it up to you. Enough letters and who knows. 
Um, this is where I'm going to just do another plug for Katusha, Girl Soldier of the Patriotic War that Wayne Van Sant has been writing and penciling. Um, it's about the Ukrainian resistance to Nazi rule. Um, I think I don't think book three is out yet. Books one and two are out, and uh, it's it's amazingly done. I, I have both of them digitally. I have them both. Of, I went and bought both of them in print. Um, and he's done a lot of other ones as well, uh, World War II, Civil War related as well. So uh, again, if you haven't had a chance to at least check out Katusha, uh, give it a shot. Chad. Ormo Chick from St. Peter's, Missouri. I'm 15 years old. I've wanted, I've always wanted to go to war, mostly because I don't mind dying for my country. I've learned a lot from your comic book, but I'm still mixed up. Can you make the next issue about a teenage boy going to war? Thanks. Huh. Doug writes, Dear Chad, and I'm sorry if I spelled your name wrong. I couldn't make it out. Okay. First of all, it's never a good idea to think about dying for your country or anything else. Sure, soldiers sometimes sacrifice their lives in a war, but as General Patton, old blood and guts himself for, old blood and guts himself said, "You win wars by making the other poor, dumb, expletive deleted die for his country." Think about that, and think about this. Every issue of the NAM is about a teenager going to war. The average age of a new troop in country was nineteen. And then uh, Jerry Bucklew congratulates them on how good the comic is and says, I'd really like to tell all the families of those good men who died helping others, and my heart goes out to them. Keep up the good work. Nam notes this month, ARP, Aerial Reconnaissance Patrol, Artie, Artillery, B-Girl, part of the entertainment personnel at a low-life establishment, C-Rats, C-Rations, slightly more civilized than K-Rations, containing an entree dessert and other supplies. Donut dollies were female Red Cross workers whose job it is to boost morale. They remind the troops what they're fighting for. K-Rats, K-Rations, bars of solidified high-protein goop meant to be eaten in the field. So, like, cliff bars? So, like, are all those, like, mountain climber, American Ninja Warrior, cliff bar eating people eating K-Rations now? Huh. Clicks or kilometers, must tick quickly, REMF, unfavorable reference to personnel stationed in non-combat areas. Slicks are Hueys or personnel carrying helicopters. Next issue, what happens when you start to care if you live or die? If Doug starts to go sane, he might end up dead. And on the bottom, there's um, a panel of two guys talking uh, with beer bottles in their hands. One says, one says, didn't they train you to do nothing in the army? Nobody will pay you to do what they taught me. Not legally, anyway. And it says, The Death of Joe Hallen, starting with issue 52 of the NOM. That's slightly off, because issue 52 will be the first Punisher story, but maybe we're, maybe they didn't have that exactly mapped out yet. Ads this month, there's a Mission Impossible video game from Ultra. Looking at the screen caps, it looks a lot like stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, some of the other games they, they did at the time. I never played that. We have The Wrath of the Black Manta. We have, ooh, How Columbus Discovered Honey Nut Cheerios. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, seeking a route to faraway lands, until a certain bee changed all of his plans. 
The bee came up to Columbus, the story goes, offering him a taste of honey nut Cheerios. Golden honey and crunchy nuts sound, sound yummy, asked the bee. Columbus declared, honey and nuts, wow, what a great taste discovery. Columbus was Italian. The honey and nut taste was such a delicious distraction, he sailed round and round into a certain direction. "'What about America?' cried the first mate. "'Let me finish my honey nut Cheerios. "'America can wait.'" That sounded like Dracula. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, next ad. "'Bad guys beware! "'Captain Planet and the Planeteers are coming to TV!' Combined, I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, he's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. He's our powers magnified, and he's fighting on the planet side. Captain Planet, he's our hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. Gonna help him put asunder bad guys who like to. Join the Planeteers and the power is yours. All the action of this adventure starts on the weekend of September 15th. Check your local listings for details. The power is yours! I never watched this show. Sorry, guys. I think by then I was just kind of, you know, done. Um, same Bonk's Adventure from last time around. I'm not going to read that again. The Science Fiction Book Club. Forget the girl. You'll get your paws on five books for one dollar when you join now. Ooh, Star Trek The Lost Years. I loved this book. I kind of want to go back and, and get all all the Star Trek The Lost Years stories. Um, I really enjoyed them. And, in fact, I deliberately went and bought the like last two, even though I hadn't read Star Trek novels in years, just to finish up that series. It was so good. Maybe what I should do is... All right. Now I'm talking out loud. Let me just get back to the ads here. Dragon slaying, Game Boy action, web slinging. So there's a Fortress of Fear, Wizards of Wars, Fortress of Fear, and Amazing Spider-Man for Game Boy. Score football cards featuring Dan Marino and Phil Sims. The Marvel subscription ad has just standard um, licensed property-looking poses of Spidey, Gray Hulk, Iron Man, Cap, and Silver Surfer. There is a acclaimed Total Recall Nintendo game, and on the back, Mage Stones, the game from TSR, uh, which is from the Dragonlance saga. So that's it for issue 49 of the NOM. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, I'm going to have the second Savage Tales fifth to the first story. Well, hi there. This is Huckleberry Hound. 
And when I'm not busy making movies and TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, no problem, fellers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to Magilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you, TwoTrueFreaks.com. Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. Savage Tales number 4 was released on February 18, 1986, and had an April 1986 cover date. The cover is a Joe Jusco cover that shows two scantily clad women firing machine guns because of course. And the magazine credits are Jim Shooter, Editor-in-Chief, Larry Hama, Editor, Pat Redding, Assistant Editor, Anita Duncan, Art Production Coordinator, Joe Jusco Cover, and Art Nichols did the fronts piece, which shows a guy with a machine gun and a woman in a bikini and cutoff jeans on shorts on a motorcycle, because, of course. There's no biography page, just letters, and the ones that mention the fifth to the first are very positive and mention how much they like the art and the story. Our story is The Sniper, and it was written by Doug Murray and illustrated by Michael Golden. Once again, it's all caption boxes, so I'm just going to read it straight out. There's an old army joke that goes, military intelligence is a contradiction in terms. It may not be funny, but damned if it ain't true. We were on the way back from an ambush we'd set at a point military intelligence had tabbed as a heavy North Vietnamese supply route. We'd spent six days watching that patch of trail and didn't see so much as a peasant farmer goat with his ox go by. Hell, that trail looked like if it hadn't been used since the French left. Anyway, we were flying our back from this fiasco when our chopper pilot gets a call. Seems like a bunch of greeny marines had headed into this area. MI, military intelligence, had certified as completely pacified to scout out a new base location. The pacified area had jumped up and bit the Marines in their soft places. The Marines had taken heavy losses without seeing the, even seeing the enemy. Now they had retreated to their LZ and were screaming for help. 
Our chopper jockey told me that help from base would be about 30 minutes coming, but we could be there in five. I told him to go for it. Hell, we'd all been dressed up with no place to go for days. We spotted the Marines within minutes, and as we started to rotate down to the little LZ, a shot came through the chopper's little plexiglass nose and caught the pilot in the neck. He spurted blood everywhere, and the chopper kind of heeled over sideways, caught with the, caught a rotor on the ground, and pinwheeled in. By the time I convinced myself I wasn't dead, the second slick had come in safe, and the sergeant was pulling our troops into the bush to circle and pinch off the area the shooting was coming from. Our cover slick was already over that spot and laying all kinds of fire into it. I figured things were under control and decided to see if I could give Croker a hand with the wounded. Truth to tell, I was still a little shook and needed some more time to get thinking straight. The warrant who'd been flying the chopper was dead, but the side gunner was still breathing. He'd taken quite a hit on impact and had caught some metal when the rotor broke, but the Croker thought he'd make it. By then I felt like I could face the bush, but as I started out, I saw the sergeant his way back in. He came up and tossed me a rifle. It was an old US-03 Springfield with a sniper scope, probably a souvenir from one of Jack Kennedy's advisors. I must have given the sergeant a funny look because he told me that was it, just one sniper who they'd taken out. It wasn't until we were back in the base hosting a couple of cold ones that he told me the rest. Hell, one little girl doing all that? I've got a little sister about that age, but that's the way this war is. Like I said, there ain't no such thing as military intelligence, because war don't make no sense at all. With the exception of the Tunnel Rat story that was reprinted in issue number 8, and that Doug Murray mentioned was never printed in Savage Tales, probably because Savage Tales didn't have much of a run, lasted 8 issues, and I'm pretty sure that the last couple of issues were around the time that the NOM was starting. This is the last fifth to the first story that Michael, Goldman, and Doug Murray did. And as we begin the last few issues of Doug Murray's time in the NOM, I'm glad I was able to track these down and take a look at them because it's a reminder of everything that went into the series that I've been talking about for the last 56 episodes. Again, Murray gives us a great piece of short fiction. This one is a twist that's not completely unconventional. After all, there are other stories about wartime where the heroes discover that the person or persons shooting at them are not whom they expected. But Murray doesn't go for crazy shock value or make them some sort of M. Night Shyamalan movie twist moment. In fact, to Murray and Golden's credit, we never actually see the sniper. We start off with many shots of helicopters followed by the crash of one chopper. Our main character waking up with blood in his face and realizing he's okay. Soldiers firing into the jungle. And then the Sarge going into the jungle to make his discovery, which is done in four panels. He looks around a tree trunk, holds a shotgun up, then pauses in the bottom panel of the last page as a shot of the Sarge from behind, holding the rifle being described and lighting a cigarette, with the only evidence of the sniper being part of an arm and a limp hand hanging out of a tree branch. And honestly, you'll actually miss it if you're just glancing at the panel and not looking. I mean, once you see it, you can't not see it, but it's a great use of detail by Golden, who really always has such a great sense of such things. This is a simple story about how, as the last sentence says, war don't make no sense at all, and both writer and artist drive this point home incredibly well. And that's really it with the fist of the first. If you can track those old Savage Tales issues down, the ones from the 80s, uh, number one and... Number four, I highly recommend it. I do have one email before I go. This one is about issue fi- episode 50, 
and it's from friend of the show Luke Giaconetti. Luke writes, Tom, hey man, wanted to drop you a quick line and say one, congratulations on the move being finished and so much as a thing is ever finished. And two, that I am glad to see In Country back. I had not heard of the book or film In Country as covered in episode 50, so I was suitably intrigued to hear your discussion of it. The character of Emmett reminded me in a tangential way of my sociology professor when I was an undergrad at Clemson University. He was a Vietnam veteran and spoke on occasion about the war in the context of one's socialization to a given environment and community. I one remember one sunny South Carolina spring day he had us go outside and held class in the amphitheater. Yes, Clemson has a classical amphitheater. Luke, so does UVA. I am not sure what we had gotten into him that day, but it was War Stories Day. He told us about being pinned down by the VC while waiting for the choppers to come and extract him. He also told us about a time when, in a firefight, not sure if it was VC or NVA, he looked up from his cover to see the company's heavy machine gunner standing atop a hill and sweeping fire back and forth, full auto, while screaming the battle hymn of the Republic. The one story which stuck with me the most was one he told about when he had recently gotten back into the world. One of his friends had invited him to a party, and he described a feeling of being watched the entire night. No matter how he moved through the party, he said there were eyes boring into him. So he decided to lure them out, heading to a quiet corner of the house and drawing his knife, which he still carried. Before he could ambush the person watching him from, way, from the way he described it, like right before, he realized what was up. It was a young woman, and she was watching him and following him because she was interested in him. The story was an object lesson about how war, even if you survive, irrevocably be changes much like I think we see illustrated with Emmett from In Country. And just because it has changed you, it does not mean that you are broken, lost, or damaged goods. As we, as a nation, continue to raise awareness of veterans' issues, including PTSD, I think we can more properly treat our men and women of the armed forces with care and respect they are not only entitled to, but utterly deserved. My professor's story did have an happy ending. The woman who pursued him at that party ended up becoming his bride not too long afterwards. Thanks for the great episode and looking forward to more coverage of the NAM. What a great story and a great email. This is the type of stuff I love to hear and, and love to get because it's interesting and fascinating. So really, thanks, Luke. And if anyone else there has out there has anything they'd like to email in about, please go right ahead. Putting the email section at the end is like, like this is going to allow me to read it, answer it in a more timely fashion instead of waiting until I'm halfway done with the podcast to do it. So please right in and that's it next episode of in country i'll be back with our next issue which is issue 50 of the series i'll have another special feature along with it and until then thanks for listening and take care because i love you too much baby you have been listening to in country podcast that covers Marvel Comics, The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash in country podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the 
Two True Freaks network of podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.